0: Hi, and welcome to today's episode. I'm so lucky today to be talking to Henry from the History of the British Isles podcast. If you haven't had a chance to check out his podcast, you'll definitely want to after this interview. And of course, sometimes the taping online can be a little tricky, but I think we're getting better at it. So hopefully, you can hear us and everything is crystal clear. And as you know, I love interviewing scholars, students, academics, amateurs, podcasters, obviously and so many more. When they're passionate about their topic, I get very excited and I just want to learn more. And you may have noticed that not all the topics here are Canadian, but I am. I'm Rosie, I'm a Francophone from Canada, and this is my podcast. I guess now, more British history, eh? today I'm talking with a fellow podcaster, Henry, from the history of the British Isles. I'm going to leave Henry to tell you and explain to you what and why he wants to talk about this. So welcome, Henry.
1: Hi. So I want to talk about, well, generally early medieval Britain, specifically kind of the arrival of the Anglo-Saxons and what happened and what resistance there was to them, as well as the later Anglo-Saxon period and specifically the wars between Penda who was the king of Mercia and Northumbria, because it's very interesting, kind of crossover, because it's the first time we really see that kind of relationship between the Welsh and the Anglo-Saxons and like war and conflict between them.
0: Mm -hmm. I guess we can almost just jump into it. Some people might have a little bit of background and some people might not. So do you want to place us with what was happening at the beginning of your topic?
1: So in 476, the Western Roman Empire fell although it fell a bit early in Britain, around 410 in the first decade, second decade of the um, 5th century. What happened immediately after that was that Britain was kind of left undefended. It was facing a lot of raids. It went good for a bit, but eventually, as the story goes, they hired Anglo-Saxon mercenaries who were from modern-day Denmark and the Netherlands and Germany, northern Germany, and they then established their own rule because they viewed the Britons as very weak, if we can trust the historians of the time, which is not certain. The uh, Britons did resist and eventually were able to push the Anglo-Saxons back, but then conflict returned and the Anglo-Saxons eventually won control over all of England. Although Wales, Cornwall, which is the southwest corner of England, Scotland and Ireland remained Celtic.
0: And so with this change, I guess it was a change of culture. Because the Romans fell. Yeah, yeah. So, how did things uh, move along to what we've understood now?
1: Well, once the Romans fell, the Britons just were facing a lot of raids, but they were functioning okay, although a lot of the old Roman culture did collapse. In Wales, we see them returning to hill forts. We see the general collapse of currency across the British Isles, as well as like urban living. Most people abandoned cities because they're targets for raiders. It's really hard to maintain their sewage systems and stuff like that once there's no, like, influx of new people and, and, like, specialisation anymore. This all means that the Britons are basically a lot weaker and they're already not a very militarised people. Although they were on the frontier of the empire, they spent most of their time being quite a um, peaceful and, how do I put it, like, backwater almost. No conflict really came there. We see that change but this is still a group of people who aren't very used to war and this means that they aren't really used to all these new changes of all these invaders specifically from Scotland and Ireland were the two main sources with the Anglo-Saxons also raiding but they weren't really invading till obviously when they did later on and all this means that culture really has to revert back it can't stay the same Roman way because they've lost the Specialisation the Romans had, they lost all the technology. But even though people still generally claim to be Roman, they're not really. They don't have that Roman way of life. They don't. They wouldn't have spoke Latin, for example, when the Romans did rule. Everyone would have spoken Latin at least when you're wealthy, and probably if you were even poor or middle class, most people wouldn't have spoke Latin, and it would have been a symbol of what they viewed as civilisation. But now they couldn't speak Latin as much because that was just the change in culture usually in the Roman Empire, there'll be governors who were from another province. So they weren't like kind of consolidation of like local rebels. So you wouldn't be ruled over by people speaking Latin, which means you would revert to these old cultures, these old ways of life.
0: And so the Roman did have an impact, obviously, on languages and so forth. But do we see any other impact beyond that? Do we see any changes in the culture?
1: Yes, certainly. There was this Romano-British culture, which is this mix of British and Roman culture. Specifically before Christianity, you saw Celtic gods being affiliated with Roman gods or even being incorporated into the Roman pantheon. So people would have viewed the Romans and the Roman culture as intertwined with the British culture at the time, especially because the Romans had this hot propaganda of them being the one civilised people in the world, which people would have really agreed with. Because once you've been ruled by something as mighty as Rome for such a long time, you would definitely think the Roman way is the correct way. I see.
0: And when the Roman left, then those cultures kept going. But then you wanted to also mention the Anglo-Saxons. So do we want to jump ahead into that?
1: Okay, let's talk about the Anglo-Saxons. The Anglo-Saxons, as I mentioned, were from kind of Holstein and southern Denmark, as well as like northern Germany, bits of like Friesia and the Netherlands. And the Anglo-Saxons were a group of different people. So the main groups were the Jutes, which come from Jutland, which is in northern Denmark. Well, yeah, northern Denmark. The Saxons, who came from northern Germany, and the Angles who came from Holstein, which is part of Germany now, but used to be part of Denmark. Um, And it's like the southern bit. If you look at a map, it's the bit which sticks up from Germany and goes into Denmark. Anyway, they came from those bits. And this means they have very similar culture to the Vikings at least in the early bit. If you were just looking at them, you'd think they are very similar. They had basically the same gods. They called them by different names, but there was Woden, who was their lead god, who obviously starts sounds quite similar to Odin, and they were pagans, and they were known for being seafarers. Even though they didn't use the longships, they were still seafarers. And to the Romans, they would have had the same effect. They were these pagans, these non christianized barbarians who were attacking you by sea. And when they came, they were very effective against the Britons, who were really divided and couldn't really resist. They were already really weak. So when they attacked, the Britons were pretty much unable to resist, and the Saxons basically conquered Britain in a a matter of a few decades. But let's go on to the subject of resistance, which I mentioned. There was supposedly, according to Gildas, who was not the most reliable source, he's a preacher from Brittany who was basically writing a sermon and is one of the main sources for this period, because there are quite literally barely any sources. He said that there was this man called Rosius Aurelianus, who was a Romano-British general. We have different accounts of where he was from. Some claim he was a Roman gentleman, as Gildas did, but the later historian Bede claims he was a Briton, like a local who was, like, against Vortigern, who was the supposed ruler of Britain in the mythological kind of recording, even though he probably wasn't, but that's a whole separate thing. He's generally considered to be a mythic figure. But anyway, basically, this Ambrosius Aurelianus dude, he effectively resists the Saxons for Gildas claims for ages, and he's able to essentially push them back and out of Britain. But then they come back, and they conquer, and there's basically no resistance, because this dude, who's so good at unifying them, is now dead. They've fallen back to the old ways, and they thinking about what Gildas was trying to say. He was trying to say, look, you've all been sinners. You've all sinned and you should be punished for that. There was this one guy who was not a sinner and he did well. Now look at you all. You're now divided. You're now not doing what a good Christian should be. And you're going against that, which is why he viewed the Saxons as, I guess, a punishment by God.
0: So if we move ahead a little bit then, um, do we see what the resistance was beyond them being weaker and not able to combat the Anglo-Saxons? Do we see a shift in there?
1: It seems that resistance in England is very weak, but it kind of solidifies in Wales and Cornwall and Scotland, but to a lesser extent, because they were never really Roman in the first place. But in Wales specifically, and in Cornwall, there were these rulers known as the Five Tyrants. I'm not going to name them all, but basically these rulers were apparently, according to Gildas, really bad people, but they were able to effectively resist... Anglo-Saxons in those specific areas. Some of these were probably mythic figures but there were a few which were probably real people who did effectively resist the Anglo-Saxons.
0: And so you've mentioned Wales. Did you want to talk more about what was going on in
1: Wales? A bit okay. So in Wales it became quite divided. A big reason for this is that there's this whole idea that when a king dies or when someone dies their inheritance is splitted equally, pretty much. Well, some will get more, but their inheritance is splitted among their children, specifically their sons, considering this was a patriarchy. But, yeah, their inheritance was splitted. This means there are a bunch of different kingdoms, the big three being Diffed, which was in the southwest corner, Gwynedd, which was in the northwest corner, stretching along the north coast of Wales, and Powys, which is in the centre. Around them are a bunch of different smaller kingdoms, which are all kind of there, but mainly just as a battleground for the big three. And these three kingdoms kind of came to fight with the Anglo-Saxons and with themselves. The main thing was that Gwynedd and Mercia, which was an Anglo-Saxon kingdom, and this is this guy Pender I was talking about, um, they became to be allies because it started off with the... Northumbrians, who were another Anglo-Saxon kingdom, invading Gwenned, getting involved in their affairs. They exiled their king, for example. Then their king came back with some support from Ireland, and he basically attacked Northumbria with the help of Mercia, and now they realised they had an alliance, because they both had the same enemies. They both were enemies of Northumbria, and Mercia also shared a large border with Paris, which was another of the Welsh kingdoms which Gwynedd was in conflict with, so they allied for both of those reasons. And this shows how Welsh affairs were conducted. The kingdoms looked for outside help a lot because they were basically equal. Each of them had equal power. Eventually Gweld would become the dominant one. But for the large part, the kingdoms looked for outside help to kind of break this kind of stalemate. It came to a point where the Anglo-Saxons weren't anymore an existential threat, nor were the Irish or the Scottish or anyone else. The only threat to them was the other Welsh kingdoms.
0: So when the Welsh and Mercia got together is essentially when things calmed down for the Anglo-Saxon invasions?
1: Yeah, it was a bit after. At that point, most of Anglo-Saxon England was um, Christian, so it wasn't the same thing. We don't really know about the resistance. We don't know whether the Anglo-Saxons tried to conquer Wales, whether the Welsh resisted. We don't know what happened there. There isn't much for record. What we do know is that the only time we know in the early time where they do interact is with um, the Northumbrian invasion. So, the Northumbrians invaded Gwynedd. they pushed their king back to Anglesey, which is an island off the coast of north Wales, and they basically conquered them. Eventually, their king was forced into exile in Ireland. He was able to get help by the Irish and returned and reconquered Gwynedd. At that point, he allied Mercia, who had a pagan king called Pender, which means every single chronicle from this time basically is really against these two. And they invaded Northumbria because they had just been invading both of them because Northumbria was trying to impose itself as a supreme kingdom over all of Britain. They invaded and they eventually beat Northumbria for many years. They killed two kings and then the king of Northumbria was able to kill the king of Gwynedd, who was then forced back to Gwynedd. Mercia still continued to fight, but Gwynedd was basically out of it at that point because they were more focused on internal Welsh affairs. Seems there was a civil war going on in Gwynedd. Mercia eventually was beat back by Northumbria after another succession of kings.
0: So you've talked about Penda quite a bit, and you mentioned being interested in
1: talking about him here too. So what did you want to mention? Okay, so Penda was this anglo-saxon king he's often referred to as the last pagan warrior king because at this point every single other anglo-saxon kingdom at least the large ones were christian he wasn't he was still a pagan he he wasn't even supposed to come to the throne he basically forced himself to become king he wasn't in the direct line of succession he basically just got there by force of will and he went about imposing his will over the anglo-saxoncy started with Northumbria. Once he beat them back a bit, he invaded Wessex, which is the southern Anglo-Saxon kingdom, who'd eventually form England, and beat them back. Then he invaded Northumbria again, and he was kind of going back between the two a bunch. And he, for a short while, imposed his dominion over basically the entirety of Anglo-Saxon England before eventually being beat back, as I said, and killed by Northumbria and their king.
0: Do you have more details on the types of wars that he fought or are there sources to lean here too?
1: We know later on, we don't know at this point, but it's likely they used something similar, that they used kind of round shields and like whatever they could get in their hands. And if you were wealthy, you'd probably have an axe or a sword. If you were poor, you might have a spear or just like farm equipment. And we look at the Sun Hu burial, which is near contemporary to this. The Sutton Hoo burial is a burial in um, East Anglia in England today, which we don't know which king it was for, but we think it's for King Raidwald of East Anglia. And it's got this very famous helmet in it, which is this incredibly well-preserved Anglo-Saxon helmet. So they wore these helmets, which were kind of full face, apart from kind of your cheeks. They covered your entire face. They had like these kind of, so imagine like a Roman helmet, but with a faceplate added on. So we know if you were wealthy, you probably would have wore something like that. But if you were poor, you probably wouldn't have had a helmet. Or you would have wore like a standard metal helmet with nose guard.
0: And their kind of armour, was it based also on the Roman style or did they have a different style?
1: Uh, It was likely their armour wasn't at all substantial, probably just leather. Or if you were really wealthy, you might have something metal, but probably not considering this is a time where people really weren't that rich. Even if you're wealthy, it's likely you wouldn't have that much access to any kind of metal. This is, there's a reason it's called the Dark Age. Even if there are a lot of cultural things going on and there's administrative, people weren't wealthy, so I doubt they would have had much in the way of armour.
0: Yes, it's definitely not what we think of when we think of a knight or somebody fighting a war these days.
1: <laughs> Indeed.
0: When we look at um, Britain, I mean, I've not been to many parts of it, but the landscapes are very different. Did you come across any interesting tidbits, let's say, or interesting facts about how they were able to move around the different landscapes?
1: Well, it tends to be, I think, a lot in warfare in Britain that hills are very, very crucial. If we look back at the earliest battles, always the record we have is about hills. And if we go a bit further forward and we have more record, we also see islands being used. There's a case where a Viking leader was basically trapped by a much larger English army on this island. And he said, OK, look, let me come over and fight you like man to man. the English commander was um, quite kind of, he'd made an error and he said, OK. So he let the Vikings come across off this island onto the mainland and they had a battle and the English lost. And that really shows how, how there is this landscape and how it could be taken advantage of. But you also can lose out really badly because of this environment. And whenever we're looking at the really important battles in British history, in Britain at least, they're always on hills or by rivers.
0: So the access points were really important. Yeah, yeah. Do we have any idea of, let's say, group sizing? How many men actually fought in some of these battles? Or is that also less known?
1: Less known, but it would probably be in a maximum the low thousands. So it wasn't very big the average battle probably have up to a 1,000 men in it on each side.
0: And you also mentioned how Penda made himself the king. So how did that happen? Did he win some battles? Did he kill opponents?
1: It's more that like the Anglo-Saxons have this very, very different alien system of inheritance. Basically, the next king is decided by an election. So any member of the royal family, so you might be the oldest son of the former king, that would probably give you a higher chance, But you still are just as likely to get elected as your second cousin would be. Because anyone who's descended from the founder of the dynasty basically has an equal chance of becoming king.
0: So I guess the kings and their descendants had to be well liked or else people didn't vote them in.
1: Yeah, it wasn't really the people. It was more there were these people called aldermen, which are basically um, kind of... I guess the equivalent would be a duke, but they were kind of in some cases appointed, in some cases more like hereditary, but they would decide as a council.
0: And in your timeline that you wanted to mention, you were talking up until about 1016. So what were some of the things that happened between Penda and the timeline that you've
1: laid out? So Penda's in the 600s, the early to mid 600s. From there, we see Northumbria is dominant for about 50 years from there. Then Mercia, Penda's kingdom, becomes the dominant Anglo-Saxon kingdom till the early 800s, where we see the rise of Wessex and also the coming of the Vikings. The thing which made Wessex very dominant during this time is, as I said, in some kingdoms, aldermen were appointed and in some ones, they were hereditary. In Wessex, they had appointed aldermen, which was really useful when you're having all these Vikings about. You really need good leaders. And this made Wessex able to first beat back Mercia and then be the last Anglo-Saxon kingdom standing against the Vikings when Alfred the Great was ruling. And eventually they were able to form England and push back the Vikings. The reason I picked the date of 1016 to end this narrative is because that's um, when Knut, who is basically this Danish king, he ruled over Denmark and Norway, then he conquered England, he defeated Aether the Unready, and then his son, Edmund Ironside, he becomes king of England. And I think that's more than even 1066 an end point for Anglo-Saxon rule in England, because Edward the Confessor, who was often considered the last Anglo-Saxon king who ruled till 1066, and Harold Godwinson, who was the other obvious contender for the last Anglo-Saxon king, because he died in 1066, both of them were very influenced by the Normans. Because Edward the Confessor's mother was a Norman. He grew up in Normandy, because he was an exile there from Canute. And Harold Godwinson, he still had that kind of tint of Norman. So in Edward the Confessor's reign, a lot of his noblemans were Norman. A lot of his soldiers were Norman. So when we see the Battle of Pastings, you're seeing this ultra-Norman army compared to a only slightly Norman army. It's not that much of a change, because the Anglo-Saxon culture had already been, in some ways, defeated.
0: And you've mentioned the Normans, and some people might not be very familiar with what they are, who they are, or how they were formed. Can you address that?
1: The Normans were a group of people who were originally Vikings. They were led by a man named Roller who went raiding up the um, Seine, which is the river which goes into Paris. And the king of France, he actually beat them, but he didn't want to um, just have more Vikings come. He beat them, and he offered them a deal. Basically, he said he'd give them some land if they sweared loyalty to him and agreed to defend against other Vikings. And this, again, essentially protected the French from Viking incursions. And then this Rollo, his descendants, became the Dukes of Normandy, which is a land on the north coast of France. And they were obviously kind of a mix between being French and being Viking. So they had this kind of quite weird culture, but they were also pioneers in military and they had the best cavalry in Europe. They had their own form of each, shields. Kids, sons of Norman, would be trained very well in like military arts. And this meant they were highly militarised, so they were able to punch far above their weight. At one point, they were able to literally defeat the King of France, who is obviously someone controlling much more than a tiny amount of space on the north coast of France.
0: And so these Normans lived in France, as you've said. How did they become involved in Britain?
1: Well... The thing is, because they're so adjacent, the Normans tended to allow Vikings to go to stop off there when they raided England because they were ancestrally Vikings themselves. What this meant was that there was conflict because the English wanted the Normans to stop letting Vikings come over. And this led to a marriage alliance between Aether the Unready and Emma of Normandy, who was the sister of the Duke of Normandy, and she was Edward the Confessor's mother. And this meant that there was this kind of bond. And then when Canute took control, Edward the Confessor obviously fled to Normandy because that was where his mother was from. His mother then married Canute, but Edward the Confessor still stayed in exile because he couldn't risk going back and being killed because Canute wanted his sons to take over when he died. There's a lot of confusion because there's about like five kings in approximately five years.
0: Seems like a very rough life.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: What about the sources that we have? You've already mentioned the lack of sources. What are the more important sources that we've used to kind of piece this together?
1: So first there's Gildas, who was a Breton preacher, who was basically just writing a sermon. And then after him, there was Bede, who is the patron saint of um, chronicling, patron saint of history. Um, and he was a Northumbrian monk from the late 700s. And then after that, there were a bunch of smaller chronicles, but the big one is then the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, which was wrote from the beginning of Alfred the Great's reign and chronicles from the coming of the Anglo-Saxons to, I believe it stops in 1200. And it's this chronicle by a bunch of different monasteries who are all writing their own versions of it. So it's this great cross-section because all of them will say something different. So I encountered where two versions said one thing and all the other versions said another thing, and you had to decide which was the correct, but it means there's a lot more evidence there, there's a lot more things there to look at.
0: And what about art styles or anything like that? Is there archaeology that can help us with this time period?
1: Yeah, there is a bit of archaeology, as I said, the Sutton Hoodig. Like we have a lot of evidence of kind of jewellery and weapons. There's this very famous, well, famous among people who like the Anglo-Saxons, jewel called the Alfred jewel, which is believed to have been owned by Alfred the Great, which looks amazing. I saw it when I went to the British Library a while ago, and it's this amazing kind of—I can't remember exactly what it looks like, but it's—it's it's a gold encrusted jewel. It shows quite a degree of culture and luxury, at least in the later period. And archaeologically, there are some evidence, but there's not as much because most things were made out of wood.
0: Yes, I would imagine. What about the castles? Are there many Norman castles in England?
1: Oh yeah, there were, very, there were a lot of castles in England. There were tons. Uh, uh, not from before the Normans, but there were these Anglo-Saxon fortified towns called Burrs, which Alfred the Great started to construct, and then his successes continued. These were basically towns where you put a bunch of troops in them and you put some walls around them that basically could resist the Viking raiders. And they acted as like a communications line as well to get information about raiders through. And that would be, I don't, I'm not sure how many of them survived today, but that would probably be some evidence.
0: And then after that, as you've mentioned, there's lots of Norman castles we can study nowadays.
1: Yeah, tons.
0: Have you had the chance to see any castle in person?
1: Yeah, I've seen a lot of castles. I've not seen all of them, but I've seen quite a few. I went to, um, a lot of the castles aren't really castles anymore, like a lot of them became stately homes, but I went to um, Harlech Castle in North Wales, which is a really well-preserved old, kind of, when you think of a castle, it's like that. It's moat with a giant stone with turrets kind of crumbling, but still pretty much in shape with, like, kind of huge walls with kind of thin slits for arrow fire.
0: And that's quite incredible. As a Canadian, we don't have many castles here, unfortunately. And so we've looked at the beginnings, which is when the Romans left and the Anglo-Saxons came. Do we have evidence of how high or how far they went when they invaded?
1: Well, the Romans did conquer all of Britain. They just didn't conquer all of it for very long. There was about a year where they conquered Scotland and... They conquered all of Wales for about 50 years, but they all started to diminish in the north very quickly. In the south and central areas, it stayed around for a lot longer. But there was kind of room power just slowly diminished in these areas, because it's really hard to go from Rome to northern Wales at a time where the quickest way of travel is a horse.
0: Yes, absolutely. And the Anglo-Saxons, do we have an idea of how far up they also went?
1: They would have gone to the Firth of Forth, which is basically when you look at Scotland, where kind of on the east it juts out a lot, kind of a line that's going inwards and then juts out a lot. So that kind of line between the two of them would be about as north as the Anglo-Saxons would have gone. Although later on, when it was England, they went a lot further north. They'd just never conquered it. it seems
0: as though the northern parts of Britain, like Scotland or remote parts like in Wales, they had a much harder time to keep their power. Yeah. So you mentioned the importance of horses for the Romans. Do we have any interesting facts about those or any of the implements they use for travels?
1: the romans had this amazing network of roads as you might know but there was also this the first really official postal system where they had this network throughout the empire of people who would go between different outposts and horses they'd take a horse for exactly as long as it would take for that horse to tire out and then it would go to another place and the next place would send another horse out with a message for exactly as long as that horse would tire out and then that would arrive at another stop it's kind of that was basically the quickest way of travel of just having a bunch of stoppage points where you could exchange horses so that you'd always be travelling the fastest way possible.
0: I guess it's similar to today in our cars and having to refill our tanks every few hundred kilometres or whatnot.
1: Yeah, it's like, imagine if you had to change car every few hundred kilometres.
0: Do we know how far they had the systems in place?
1: They had Roman roads to northern England, but they wouldn't have had an advanced network. They had famously Watling Street, which went from London to York. And they would have had roads, but that would have been about as north as they would get because obviously if you're only in control of Scotland for a year, you wouldn't have time to build a massive network of roads. Absolutely.
0: And do we have information on the types of foods maybe that were brought up to England from Rome?
1: Well, I know wine was obviously very common because the Romans did love their wine. And all kind of Mediterranean foods became popular in this, as I talked about earlier, that they thought the Romans were the most civilised thing ever. So everything Roman must have been civilised. So you see a lot of wine becoming quite popular, specifically from like the south of France, which is still true in the UK today.
0: Oh, that's interesting. If we look at, then you mentioned the Mediterranean. So there was definitely a big system of mercantilism. It wasn't just them traveling back and forth, but they were setting up shops maybe or something like that.
1: Yeah, the Romans were prolific town builders. They built a lot of these Romanized, urbanized settlements at Colchester, at York, at London. These new Roman towns would have been populated with all the things you'd expect in a Roman town. Amphitheaters, shops all of those kind of things
0: And did they have difficulties considering that the weather patterns are very different in Britain and in Rome?
1: Well obviously there would have been some difficulties but not really that I know of I don't think it affects when you're conducting such a large scale because there's different weather patterns anywhere in that empire because you're going from Egypt and even parts of Arabia to Wales there's a vast range of climates in that zone so I don't think it would have affected them any more than the climate in Egypt would have
0: Mm-hmm. Do you think that that affected possibly how they built things?
1: Yeah, we see Romans, when they do go up to England, they often complain about like how cold it was. There's records of Roman soldiers writing back to their mums at some of the forts on Hadrian's Wall asking for new socks because they were just really cold because the Romans still built in the same way, but there, they just wasn't as useful up there because it's freezing cold in northern England, and Scotland, especially in winter.
0: <laughs> yeah, if you're from Rome, I would imagine that is true. And so you have talked a little bit about the armor and the type of weapons. Do you have even more information? Was it time period specific for the different types of shields and implements?
1: I think Germanic cultures tended to use round shields because, one, they're very durable. They're very good for this tactic of the shield wall where you interlock all the shields and it creates, obviously, a wall and you'd then say people can come at you and it'd be really hard to defeat this wall of shields because horses won't charge into it and you just have to run at it and you're less protected than them which gives the defenders a massive advantage
0: so the anglo-saxons had those types of shields and you've mentioned maybe some of the richer had a sword but did they use sticks did they use any other sort of natural things maybe
1: Imagine if you were poor, you would just basically use whatever you get because there was this thing called the fjord, which basically meant every, can't remember how much area, but an area of land would have to provide a soldier for the Anglo-Saxon state, at least in a later period. So if you're just a peasant who's just been told you've got to go and fight in the army for about a month or two months, you'd um, just grab whatever you can get and just hope it would work.
0: Yeah, Absolutely. And if we move a little bit forward in time, where we mention Alfred the Great, so during his time, were the armies better equipped? Because it was a bit of a, a richer time, perhaps?
1: Yeah, they would have become better equipped as the period went on. Alfred the Great is particularly noted and famous basic great modernizer. He built a navy, he started reviving learning, and he would have probably invested in his army. He was the one who restructured it and created a new system where basically men would be cycled out to fight. So you'd always... You could never serve for more than three months so that war would not affect the harvest.
0: that's very intelligent. (laughs) That gives an idea too that even though people went and fought in the war, they still had to come home and take care of the harvests over time.
1: Yeah, there's not very much men and you are living on subsistence farming, basically. And if every man in the village has to go off and fight... Even if women are just as capable as doing the harvest of men, that's half the people to do the harvest, no matter of what gender they are. This means that you can't really do it as effectively, because harvest takes a lot of effort. You don't have the kind of tools we have today. We could have probably done it with a quarter of the people in the village now, but then they needed everyone to help, because you have to basically take everything up by hand, or with horses. And
0: perhaps some people didn't even have horses if they were too poor.
1: No, you might have used cattle or something like that, but you would have been basically relying on manual labour. Mm-hmm. And
0: these wars, do we have an idea of how long they were going on? Was there some that were a month and some that were much longer?
1: Yeah, it was basically, we'd have the whole system of peace treaties back then. So it'd basically be you fought till you were completely defeated or you were forced to surrender. There'd be no half measures, so if you were defeated, you'd be deposed you probably have to pay large amounts of gold to the victor you might have to cede some land and generally war would last until they came to settlement usually it would be one decisive battle but then there would be cases where it would take years up to 10 years pender had to fight for a very long time and he didn't even win
0: so he had multiple losses but never big enough to be able to surrender completely
1: no, he had multiple victories, but the Northumbrians never had any losses big enough to surrender completely. Until eventually they had one victory and Penda was forced back because he was fighting on enemy territory. Northumbrians had nowhere further back to go.
0: We know about Alfred and Penda. Were there any other interesting players that you've found in your studies?
1: So, yeah, there were a lot of interesting figures in Anglo-Saxon England. As I talked about Raidwald of East Anglia, who is considered one of the first rulers of Britain, who was ruler of East Anglia. He was just after the first introduction of Christianity to Britain. So, in some ways, he was Christian, but he still had that pagan mindset in a lot of ways. There was this story when he was talking to a priest. He asked, because he, like, the whole communion, how turning water into wine and turn like, bread into the flesh of Christ... He wanted his um, priest to make tons of bread because he didn't know how they got the bread for the communion. And his priest was like, it's not that how it works. So that made him convert back to paganism. And so it seems as though the war of the
0: religions was also a very big factor in a lot of these events, if you will.
1: Yeah, religion was very important, at least in the early period, because at the beginning, the Welsh and the Scottish to some degree and the Irish would have been Christian. And then eventually some of the Anglo-Saxons became Christian and religion at that time was very divisive. So you would view anyone who was not as your religion as a complete heretic who didn't know the right way and was probably associated with Satan in some way. So you would very loyally kind of attack them and try to destroy them in the name of God, which meant there was a lot of warfare during this conversion period because the Christian Anglo-Saxon rulers wanted to make sure everyone in Anglo-Saxon England was also Christian.
0: And did we see traces of the paganism sticking around in sort of the border areas or the more northern areas?
1: We saw it sticking around everywhere, basically, because the cultural aspects still remain, even if you're doing it because of Jesus, still the medicinal or the holidays and stuff like that. So even into today, like Halloween was originally a pagan holiday, which they converted into a Christian holiday to stop it from being pagan and stuff like that. Um, A lot of things we think about today, like herbal medicine was originally a pagan thing, which they continued and viewed as like a mystical Christian thing. So even though it's not open, you would still see paganism no matter where you were, because there's cultural aspects which religion doesn't wipe away, which the new religion wouldn't have wiped away.
0: And so these cultural aspects, as you've mentioned, did you come across any cool or interesting facts about how things changed in language?
1: Well, you have this kind of Germanic language, like kind of like Scandinavian languages or German, which slowly, with the Anglo-Saxon language, that would be, which is what we call Old English, and that slowly evolves with the introduction of Norman and Latin aspects, from Norman French and Latin, obviously from the priests, which forms Modern English. It's a long phase because you have um, a ridiculously large number of things. There's, um, there's Old English... And then you have Middle English, which is what um, like Chaucer would have been writing in. And then there's Early Modern English, which is what Shakespeare is writing in. And then there's obviously Modern English, which is what we're speaking right now.
0: So we can actually see a lot of the changes with these wars and these changes of uh, the people in power and the different cultures cross-pollinating a little bit.
1: Yeah, I've got, wait a second, I've got an old English book, uh, Beowulf, which is quite a famous one. And I can show you an example of what that would have sounded like. Absolutely. Okay, so I'll give you an example of Old English. Wait where gardina in gerdgum pio disengada prum hundar apingus ellen fromedon which translates as, So the Spear Danes have in days gone by and the kings who ruled them had courage and greatness. We have heard th- those princes' heroic campaigns. So obviously that's completely different. That's It sounds alien to us today.
0: Yes, it seems as though many people think that Old English is something like Shakespeare,
1: which is completely wrong. <laughs> yeah, that's early modern English. It's not even Middle English. It's English is a really old language and Shakespeare's on the modern side.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you very much for reading that. I would not be able to read Old English...
1: Yeah, we, I can't. I can barely read that. There's a bunch of letters. I don't know what they are, and I just kind of guess. But I hope I got it something right. I'm sure someone who might listen to this will say, "Oh, you're saying that completely wrong."
0: Well, it's still a much better try than <laughs> if I tried. I appreciate that. Thank you. The problem we seem to have some writing in these languages, and I guess that's how we know. How they worked, or do we look at uh, modern language today to understand how the language evolved or how it was spoken?
1: It's a mix. Alfred the Great was very famous for um, kind of writing down a lot of the um, the Old English. He was famous for like chronicling it, and he got people to start writing in Old English, not just Latin, because the priests were writing in Latin. So it's thanks to him that we know something of what old English was actually like. For example, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle was wrote in old English, whereas most chronicles were written in Latin. But yeah, we do have to trace back. We have to look at French and we have to look, that's a French word. That's got nothing to do with French because French is the other origin. And so you have to go back through it and think. And then it's, there's also a whole social aspect because poor people would have been Anglo-Saxons they would have spoken English words and the rich would have spoken French words which is why like cow is the animal and beef is the meat and beef is a French origin and cow is an English origin.
0: Hmm. I also had one last fun question. If you had a time machine, is this the time period in which you would like to overview, you know, safely? Or is there another time period that you're really interested in?
1: Hmm. Not sure because I'm interested in a bunch of time periods. I'm not I'm not really sure what I'd end up going with. This would be definitely near the top of the list, but there are other things. i like to see the really big events in history, like the assassination of Julius Caesar, for example, or the proclaiming of Napoleon as Emperor of the French, stuff like that, which is really big. But if I was going to look at a time period, I think I'd probably go with this period, yeah.
0: Yeah, so if you were to pick an event like Napoleon... What would you want to be involved in? Would you want to just sort of be standing on the sidelines or would you want to interview him (laughs) for fun?
1: I think I'd stand on the sidelines. I was listening to another podcast about just people, the British, seeing him at the time when he was emperor. And I thought the way they described him, I kind of think it would be way more interesting to just look at him than actually speak to him. He's a very, he's the kind of guy who, who would have, we basically know his personality. We know so much about him. But what he looked like, his demeanour, that can't be passed down through history.
0: Yes, absolutely. So just looking at him and seeing him in action and trying to understand and see what he's doing, that kind of thing?
1: Yeah. Well,
0: that's really fascinating. I guess the bigger figures in history are sort of the ones that we want to visit or meet someday. Yeah, totally. I really appreciate you coming on the podcast, Henry. It was really fun. Very enjoyable. Thank you so much. I will make sure to put your information in the show notes for anybody who's interested in following up with you and seeing what you're up to next. Your episodes are very fascinating. Thank you. Okay, well, we'll talk to you again soon. Bye. Bye. Thank you again, Henry, for coming on the podcast. An interesting book recommendation would be Robin Fleming's Britain After Rome. The Fall and Rise 400 to 1070. And for more information, Henry has a long list of other book recommendations you can find on his podcast. I will put that link in the show notes. You can also find me on social media Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at HistoryA, or the website, historya.com. And if you get a chance to rate this podcast, apparently it does help people find me, so I appreciate any help in that matter. And I would not be able to forget to thank my husband Jamie, our brood of kids, our family, our friends. Without them, I would not be adventuring through history. So, un grand merci!